0: man it feels good to be living eternally I'm forgiving without a care in the world just catch me coasting and dipping catch me moving around I love exploring this
1: world in and out of my town now welcome welcome to that postmail podcast um we are on a we're having a special special episode this week we're gonna get a little uh we're gonna get a little personal because there was a there were a couple weeks ago when Dustin was unable to join us because he was at a baseball game. And normally, normally I wouldn't mind. I mean, I mean, it's baseball going with the family and stuff. It was, you know, something they'd planned. No big deal. Family comes first. But Dustin had the audacity to post a picture of himself drinking a, a very particular beverage that we do not approve of on this on this podcast. Dustin, would you like to tell everybody
0: what you were drinking? It was a Corona extra. It wasn't a Corona light, at least. Corona extra.
1: That is, that is almost beer, but not <laughs> quite good enough. We do we do not accept that as a valid beer. So, um, you are going to have to repent before we are going to be able to continue this episode. So, Dustin, <laughs> I am calling you to repentance, and I really don't want to have to get the elders of your church involved because this is a very serious issue.
0: Okay. Well. It- if if it matters, I was out in the sun and it was warm and I needed to stay hydrated and the closest thing to water was right there. So, I wasn't drinking it because it was good beer. I was drinking it cuz I needed to stay hydrated. Does that Does that help at all?
1: What was the alcohol content of this fake alcoholic <laughs> beverage? Probably pretty low. Like what? Like give me give me a figure. Like 4% maybe? Yeah, probably. Okay, I withdraw my I withdraw my complaint.
0: I say the same thing that Tanner from the Reform Podcast always says. I'm not a beer snob. I like, I like, what does he say? I like a good beer. I'm not a beer snob. I'm a beer... Fanatic. Uh, yeah, see, he has word says, for no? It. No. Nerd? Yeah. Geek. Yeah. Nerd? Kind of something like that. Like, I like good beer, but I'm not a snob where I won't, if I'm at a friend's house and he offers me a Bud Light, I might drink it. But if if I had the choice, if I'm gonna buy the beer, I'm not sure I can be
1: friends with Tanner anymore. I might stop <laughs> listening. No, i just kidding. <laughs> no, I was okay. I withdraw my rebuke because you were drinking it. Because you were you weren't drinking beer. You were drinking
0: water. Yes, I yeah, accept, I I was accept thirsty. that. That's a valid excuse. Okay, I withdraw my rebuke. Yes, we'll we'll call it lime water because it had a lime in it. Lime water. <laughs>
1: so how are you doing today, man?
0: Not too bad. How are you doing?
1: I'm splendid. We uh we actually do have a special episode today. Uh yes. we might run quite significantly short because it's just me and Dustin. Mm-hmm. Everybody else um got raptured. Everybody else got raptured, yeah. So apparently Dat Postmill was actually wrong. Mm-hmm. And so we're in the middle of uh the seven year
0: tribulation. Yep. As we speak. Just so, fireballs um, falling in the window behind me.
1: No, that doesn't happen until three and a half years in, remember oh, when sure. the yeah. When the Antichrist breaks the breaks his covenant that he made with Israel.
0: That's right. There's airplanes falling down behind me. Cars yes. crashing. No babies yeah. should be seen. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yep. So uh, welcome to the Rapture. Yes. <laughs> that's all I
0: got. I'm not funny anymore. I'm sorry, Dustin. <laughs> no, that's all good. I'm actually checking real quick. My, I hear a whole bunch of stomping upstairs. So if you hear some boom, 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 boom in the background, that's my... That's uh, the rambunctiousness. That's my 18-month-old uh, kicking who doesn't want to sleep, and I apologize. There's, there's no there's no stopping that. So I asked yeah, my it's... wife to stop if she could, and uh, she said, you go try to stop an 18-month-old from kicking when he doesn't want to <laughs> sleep. So,
1: so is, he, is, he, is he in the terrible twos a little early, or is this
0: just the preliminary phases? It, it's possible. I don't know. Our, our, the other two never really – I don't know if they had terrible twos. It was more terrible threes. <laughs> Oh
1: really yeah. yeah they
0: for you they they do the
1: terrible part a little late,
0: yeah, I mean they've never been real bad um we we work real hard uh on discipline, and uh you know it's a little frustrating when you're out with with other friends and people, and they're like, oh, your children are so well behaved, you have such easy children, it's well, you don't see us at home, we work hard for this, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't come easy, but uh yeah. yeah, I think he's definitely he's uh seeing his older siblings doing what they want to do, and he's he's he might be a catching on to things a little quicker than the others, because he wants to catch up.
1: So mm, Nice. Yeah.
0: Cool. So this week, we're going to do a little uh, know your host, get to know um, Colin, because there's a and lot of people... Dustin. Well, we're just going to ask you questions. It's all about you this week.
1: I don't know if that's going to fill up the entire time, bro, but <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> we'll find out. A lot of people don't know you. Um, I honestly haven't known you for more than... What, maybe a year? I mean, I think we interacted in the pub here and there, but uh, yeah, I think last fall like when we started coordinating this, that's when we were really connected. So I, there's a lot even I don't know about you. Um, I know about some of your theology, but that's uh, that's about it. All right. So let's, so let's get into it. All right. Colin Pearson. Yes, that's me. First question. Are you the son of a pair? I am actually the son of a Scotsman,
1: so... The son of a, the son of a son of a Scotsman.
0: Hm. So Colin Pearsonson.
1: So the it it comes from the Scottish clan Macpherson, which surprisingly sounds more like Pear than Pearson,
0: but that's just how we say it, I guess. I don't know. All right. So your new nickname is Colin the Pear Pearson. Oh, okay. I don't think that's going to catch on, but. You, you want to stick with the Wookie the Wookie maker?
1: Or what I did, <laughs> I just really don't care. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Alright, Colin, where are you from?
1: Um, I was originally from the East Coast. I was born in Illinois, uh, when my parents, I think my parents were finishing college, something like that. Um, and then we moved to Ohio for like three weeks, I think. Um, of course, I don't remember this. This is just things that people have told me. Mm. And then, um, so I think I was in, I think I was in, uh, Illinois for about, I don't know, six, Six months a year something like that, I think a little maybe a little bit more than a year. Um, and then we moved to Ohio just where, um, where my dad's mom lived. and then my parents uh, got a got a, an apartment in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and because my dad got a job out there where, and that's where my mom's parents lived. And so we lived there and went from an apartment to a house. and my both of my parents actually ended up moving out to California, where I live now for a job when I was six. So I was on the East Coast. I was six. So I do remember what snow actually looks like. (laughs) And then, uh, so I moved to Southern California and I've been in the, um, North LA County area for since then. So after I, um, I graduated high school in 2006, my parents moved back to Ohio to be closer to family job situation changing housing market was good to sell here, good to buy there. So they moved out there and I stayed out here to go to school and I just ended up staying. So
0: do you miss those, uh, beautiful white flecks of sin falling from the sky?
1: White flecks of sin. <laughs> um, I do like snow, but I actually prefer rain.
0: Cool. Um, so you stayed in California. What, uh, what school did you go to? What did you study?
1: I went to first I went to a community college and I studied music and then when I transferred to I transferred to Cal State Northridge and I studied
0: music education. Okay. Have you always been interested in music then? Did you
1: Yeah, I grew up I like my mom was the director of fine arts at the school that I went to growing up. That's actually the reason that we moved out here was cuz she got that job. So she was an administrator for a private school and heading up the uh the fine arts department which included art, music, theater those sorts of things and so she was kind of in charge of all those sorts of things but um, she was also she was my band teacher um and she taught at least some of my music classes growing up and so my mom's been you know, she her degree was in music and so that's why I
0: was like into it cool so what what kind of music instruments do you like
1: I play a little bit of everything um if I don't know how to play the instrument I can probably figure it out if, if you give me a few minutes or if I you know look up something on the internet real quick hmm. uh but my first instrument was voice, because that's everybody's first instrument. Uh, yes. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, um, after playing all of the kooky little instruments that you play in grade school, the recorder, um, including recorder, yeah, <laughs> um, I picked up the French horn in, I think, I think it was like halfway through halfway through fourth grade. So normally band starts in fourth grade, but we couldn't get the instrument. It was hard to come by a French horn. Uh, So I started like doing private lessons halfway through the year and then kind of went even through the summer and then started an intermediate band the next year. So I played French horn all through middle school and high school and college, and that's my primary instrument. I picked up uh, a couple other, like I I, I played euphonium a little bit and, and trumpet and some random percussion instruments periodically just because... Uh, you know, we needed, we needed somebody to play triangle for three measures here and there, or we missed the euphonium player and it had a big solo or something. So I picked it up and, and kind of figured it out. Um,
0: But I picked
1: up euphonium is a baritone, like uh, so it's like smaller than a tuba, but bigger, um, bigger than a, it's kind of the same, about the same range as a trombone actually, but it has valves instead of a slide. Hmm, So it's a brass instrument. Okay. Yeah, and the you, the euphonium is a funny instrument because the name means good sound. <laughs> so the na- the name itself means it sounds good. And a uh, little a little bit of music trivia for you: French horns are actually not French; they're German. The horn itself, without valves, was an instrument that was ubiquitous across the across um, Europe. I mean, in in England, France, Germany, everywhere they they had horns because they used them for hunting calls, and so then they ended up using them in orchestras. But hmm. the, style, the reason they called it the French horn was because France was the, was the country through which it was introduced to England with valves. And, but the valve style that was designed by uh, the French was pistons, and the valve style that they use now, is, which is the German style, is the rotary valves. And so those were, that was a German design, um, and so technically it was a, it's a German instrument. But So French horn is a misnomer.
0: Germans, Germans got the shaft.
1: If you look on old orchestra music, it won't say French horn. It'll just say horn. Oh. Or core. It's the, which is the, which is the word for horn in, um, French or German. Hmm. I think it's
0: both, but. Nice. So you were a band geek growing up.
1: Yes. And, um, so I, so I played in band all, all growing up and I picked up, I picked up hand percussion just like fooling around in, um, late middle school, early high school. And then I picked up um, I picked up sticks to play like in Drumline when I was in tenth grade. And then uh, I also picked up guitar in tenth grade. I think it was tenth grade. It was either tenth or eleventh. I forget. I think it was tenth. Picked up guitar and then picked up bass guitar after that. And uh, ended up playing drums a little bit after that. And then I had to learn piano in college, so I picked up piano and had to take classes to learn how to play all the string instruments, all the woodwind instruments, all the percussion instruments, all the brass instruments. So, I, you know, I did a little bit of everything just because just cause I had to do that for school. So Yeah. Okay.
0: So give us a sample. First, voice. La. <laughs> Singing is easy. It's just, what is it? I don't Singing, What do you want me to sing? Singing talk, is <laughs> talking loud and fast and moving your voice up and down or something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's a little bit different from talking, but yeah. What do you want me to sing? I don't know what you want me to sing.
0: I don't know. What do you like to sing? What do you sing in the shower? Uh, I don't sing in the shower. What? Oh, it's right. You I play the French horn in the shower.
1: No, I just don't. I just don't do that. I'm just not one of those people. I don't know. Some some people are like, oh, it's the best place to sing, the only place to sing, but for whatever reason, I just don't. I don't
0: the only know. place we sing. Weird. Here. Okay, so where do you sing? <laughs> in the car. Uh in the car. Yeah. Okay, what do you sing in the car? Whatever I'm listening to. <laughs> what do you usually listen to?
1: Uh, Bach. Actually, like if I'm if I'm listening to music for just personal enjoyment, my my go-to is usually Bach. Ironically,
0: do you sing along?
1: Yeah, I'll like listen to the cello suites and sing along with them. It's just like a, it's like a good vocal
0: exercise. Sing me something.
1: Um. and i could just keep going but like
0: i recognize that what is that that's the prelude
1: to the cello suite one okay very badly sung but you know (laughs) nice i'm like sitting on the ground in my room i don't have very good um I just haven't practiced that in a long while.
0: Better than I can do. All right. Um, do you have a French horn near you? Um,
1: close, but yeah, no. I'm not gonna get. I'm not no. gonna get it out. <laughs>
0: All right. Percussion. We heard you beatbox, but in case anybody didn't hear it, you want me to beatbox? Yeah. So I think we've covered enough instruments for now, um,
1: yeah, I can do some tube and throat singing if you want.
0: ah, <laughs> oh, do it, do it
1: <laughs> that's <nothing. laughs> or that's so that's like the medium sort of tone, or I could do the. <laughs> Which at the moment it's not really working well for me because I don't practice it very much, but mm-hmm.
0: yeah,
1: it's not happening.
0: What's that one called?
1: It's just like there's multiple tones that, so that's like that's a subphonic. So 2 and throat singing every uh, any tone that you sing actually is not a single pitch. It has a fundamental, and then there are harmonic. There's a harmonic series that um, escalates above it. Yeah, called the natural harmonic series, and so you can change the shape of your mouth to emphasize certain pitches above it, and to make it sound like um you have two pitches going at the same time. But the subphonic thing is you just uh you apply stress around your vocal cords, and there are these um there are these. Things called false folds or something like that, that cover your vocal cords, like when you cough, it covers them to protect them from particulates flying through your, the windpipe, whatever that's called. And those false folds actually can resonate sympathetically with the vibration of your vocal cord if you apply the proper, you apply pressure. And so it makes them resonate like an octave lower. So the pitch that I'm singing is, oh, but then I go, moo, And you can hear the one like an octave lower than that. It doesn't really sound that great because I'm a total amateur.
0: That's crazy. I was just watching a a YouTube video the other day and it was like Mongolian. Yeah, same idea. Yeah. I sounded just like that. The first thing you did, I was like, it was exactly like the guys on YouTube. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm just not that good at it. You should do a YouTube video and we'll put it out there. I'm not going to do that. Get that post some publicity. We need that. (laughs) <laughs> it would be sweet. You
1: know what you can do, Dustin? What? You can take this video and you can edit out that one little chunk and just put that on YouTube.
0: And I'll just duplicate it and and then I'll and then I'll slowly bring up do like a mashup, bring up your beatbox. You can't even see like I'm shaking my head right now. It <laughs> sounds like a hit. So how how did you meet Brooke? How long have you been dating? Why aren't you Church. married yet? Crapper get um, off the pot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, to answer all those God's questions fired. in order to answer all the questions in order, we yeah. met at church. We've been dating for—I haven't counted the months, but I just remember
0: the date. You don't have to do that until you have kids.
1: We've been we've been hanging out in less official capacity for a little bit more than a year, and cool. we're not married yet because I can't support a family on my income at the moment.
0: <laughs> all right, so let's get serious for a minute now. How did you uh, come to know the Lord? Did you grow up in the faith?
1: Yeah, I was uh I was born into a Christian home and um I don't I don't remember uh I don't remember ever like, you know, walking the aisle or or praying a prayer or anything like that. I just kind of grew up knowing the Lord. So I'm not sure at what point in time God saved me, but it was it was pretty young, I think.
0: Okay. I, were your parents reformed growing up or what what denomination did no, you go to? No. We we grew up in
1: Baptist churches and um the church that we went to for a long time out here, ended up becoming non-denominational. Um, they're still, tech. I mean, they're still Baptistic in their theology, but just mm-hmm. not associated with a Baptist denomination because it it was formerly American Baptist and the American Baptist convention made some really bad decisions like, like ordaining women pastors and stuff like that, that, um our church elder board was not cool with and so they were or no i don't remember exactly what something like either women pastors or they were they were soft on some issue that they've since like gone back and changed their view on but at the time it was like not it was not good so they they left the denomination hmm. um and yeah so became independent baptist but
0: are your parents still baptists
1: yeah they go to they go to an american baptist church out in um in I think it's American Baptist. I don't really know, but it's uh, they go to Sun Baptist Church in um in Ohio. Okay. In Akron.
0: So what uh, what do they think of their uh, the-
1: theonomic son? I don't really know that we've had a chance to talk about it. I'm friends with my parents on Facebook, and I like tell them to listen to my podcast and stuff, but I don't know that they have thought about those particular issues.
0: So. so. So how did you how did you come to your stance on reform theology? Was it personal study, mentoring your pastor? Online forum discussion. The church that
1: I grew up in, the senior pastor and most of the pastoral the pastoral staff were Emeraldian or four point Calvinist, and uh, there was a, there were at least one or two guys that were three point and a and a couple guys who were five point. So the uh, tending towards the Calvinist thing was was always kind of what I grew up around. I was sort of a de facto Amaraldian because I just didn't understand limited atonement. And then I was talking to a buddy of mine that I went to school with since we were in first grade, and I was like, "Yeah, I don't really understand limited time. It doesn't make sense to me, so I don't, I don't think I'm cool with that because it just like, you know, there's these verses, and I just it doesn't make sense." And he's like, "Well, think about it this way." He asked me a question, you know, if Jesus died for everybody, why do people go to hell? And I was like, "Well, I guess I'm a five point Calvinist then, because I have no idea." <laughs> that. So then I was like, "Well, okay, I guess I'm a Calvinist then. Cool, whatever. But I was still dispensational Baptist, you know. Neonomian sort of whatever And uh, I was interested in theological issues But I didn't really have a good You know foundation as far as like Where to go to to study things So I would just like Like I'd walk into the church office And like I, I worked at the church Doing various things like running sound And I led worship for the youth group for a while and stuff like that. So I I mean, I grew up in this church. I knew the people really well. So me walking into the church office was like a normal thing. Like I would just walk into the church office and.
0: This is the one your parents went to.
1: Yeah, yeah, the one we went to out here in California. So I just like walk into the church office and I would like go into the library and look at stuff on the shelf and I just like ask like, Hey, can I borrow this book and read it? And they're like, Yeah, sure, no problem. And so I I read random books that I found on the shelf, just whatever I could get my hands
0: on. And have you always liked reading? Is that just something that you always attracted to
1: kind of like I enjoy reading, but I'm not like an I'm not an avid reader. I've become more of a reader because that's the best way to learn, and so I read mostly to learn, but I do have some books that I'm reading for fun, but so I would just read random you know sort of evangelical theological books didn't really ever get very far with that, but what really just like started shifting my perspective on a lot of issues was um first presuppositional apologetics. so Starting out I um was just friends with people on Facebook who happened to be like into pre-sup I guess but I didn't know this. So somehow I saw an advertisement for how to answer the fool. I don't even know who shared it. I watched the I watched the advertisement and I was like that seems really awesome actually. I should probably watch that film. And so I pre-ordered it and got it and I watched it and I was like whoa. I that's like that changes everything. It's a, it's a game changer. I mean, it changes the way you think about scripture,
0: changes the way that you live your life. It's just, it's, it's all about the philosophy of how we're thinking. And...
1: Yeah, exactly. Because it's talking about, it's like how you think, how you think through issues is completely changed. If you, if you just yep. like the, your automatic default is what does the Bible say? Then it's like, well, I need to know the Bible more. And so <laughs> because, uh, because it was associated with American vision, I was sort of turned on to eschatological issues and so I started discussing things with people online just a little bit and I realized that I really didn't know what I was talking about at all and so I was like asking some I was like this is kind of what I think I believe what is and what is that and they're like well that's dispensationalism and I was like okay well now that I know what I believe and then I was like realizing that like I'd, I'd known the term dispensationalism but I didn't understand like that that's all that was, was dispensationalism. I thought that that was just like a br- very broad manner of thought when it comes to theology. And I had read things like Ryrie and Schofield and Wolvard and Pentecost and stuff like that, just because those were some of the books that were on the shelf. Like I read Pentecost's like 700, 800 page things to come um, at some point. It's, I think I I think I made my way through it twice just because it was a lot of information to wrap my head around. But So I started like trying to figure out what I believed when it came to eschatology. Um, because as I started to read scripture, I started to realize like, wait a second, if that's true, then I can't be a dispensationalist. Like I was reading Romans nine and I was like, if that means what it sounds like it's saying, then I can't be a dispensationalist. And so then I started to try to figure out, well, what do I think then? And I had a friend of mine who's a pastor of a, it's a Pentecostal denomination, assemblies of God, maybe. Is that the one that was started by a woman or am I thinking something else? Maybe it's not Assemblies of God, maybe it's um, Foursquare. That's what it was. So I have a friend and I same, grew up in the same town. We went to the same high school. He taught at the high school that I that we went to at some point in time. Anyway, like I told him that I was like trying to work my way through these things and and he gave me a book by a guy who was historic pre and said, well, why don't you read this book and see what you think and just like come back. like He's like, you give the book back to me whenever you feel like, keep it as long as you need. And so then I came, gave it back to him and I was like, I was like, that's interesting. I I was like, he's he's fairly convincing. Like, that makes a lot of sense. And that kind of like fits more with what I was starting to think, you know, just from reading scripture anyway. But what I didn't like Mm -hmm. about it was that it only gave about one sentence to both amillennialism and postmillennialism. I felt like Mm -hmm. the whole thing was just talking about post-trib. And that was kind of the whole push of the book. And so that made sense to me. And I understood that. I think I read another... I read something by James Hamilton too that I got a hold of, like a bunch of stuff that I could, like articles and stuff I could find online. And I think I borrowed a book from a friend too by James Hamilton that was pretty good. Um, he's historic premill guy. And then I just decided, and then from there I was like, well, okay, well I want I want to at least investigate amillennialism and postmillennialism because like I should at least be aware of what the other positions are. And so then I um, I read Kingdom Come by Sam Storms, who is a former dispensationalist amill guy. Mm. Um, ah, no. and, uh, that was, I mean, that sold me on all ah, mill, like almost instantly. Um, so I was, I was all millennial for at least a couple months. And so I was reading stuff by like, uh, Sam Waldron and GK Beale actually is a guy that I really like a lot. And Anthony Hricama and like the Bible in the future was, was Hickema's book. That's really good. And GK Beale and I remember the name of his commentary, but he's got like a big commentary on revelation and a small one. And, um, and, uh, I think I've read pieces of the small one cause my friend had that book. And, uh, and so I read some on-mill stuff and I was pretty sold on that. And then I started to see this post-mill stuff come up. And so then I got interested in trying to understand what that was like, okay, now I'm going to understand what the post-mill side looks like. And I got sold on the post-mill stuff, uh, by reading stuff by Gary DeMar, Ken Gentry, Jay Marcellus Kick, people like that. Read some of their stuff and kind of got sold
0: on that, and here I am. Did you ever read anything by anything by Kim Riddlebarger? He seems like to be the go-to. No,
1: I never read Riddlebarger, and um, when I like, I've I've seen a couple articles here and there from Riddlebarger, and Riddlebarger's got some good stuff. Uh, but I like I prefer Storms and Beal, like especially Beal. I really like Beal a lot. Um, when it comes to when it comes to Amil stuff. So Riddlebarger is good, but I just like I like Beal better, so if somebody were to ask me to recommend a book about Amil, I'd
0: recommend Beal. So Yeah. I feel like I feel like if you ask anyone these days who's Amel, who would you recommend learning about Amel?
1: And they say Riddlebarger?
0: Yeah. Every time. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I never read anything by Riddlebarger. It's one of those things where you're almost like, you hear people push him so much. You wonder like, maybe if I did read it, maybe I would become an outmail just because <laughs> he must be that good. <laughs> I haven't read books by him, but I've read articles and I'm like, eh,
1: yeah. feels better. And it's, you know, like I'm, it's not that he's not good, but but yeah, Storm's storms Book Kingdom Come. I mean, like even if you're Postmill, you will like that book a lot. It's really good so he walks through all of the argumentation first against dispensationalism second against premillennialism and he doesn't really um i mean he argues against postmillennialism here and there but that's not so much the point of his book like that's not really his focus so
0: so so when you were dispensational when you were we'll, we'll start with dispensational when you were dispensational what when you were reading those books what was it that you were reading that made you convinced of it?
1: It wasn't a matter of what scripture said at all. I was a dispensationalist because that's what everybody in my church taught.
0: Like, Okay.
1: Like nobody ever said, like, I am a dispensationalist because this verse, this verse, and this verse. If somebody said, show me a verse where it says that there's a pre-tribulational rapture, I would go to uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. And they're like, well, where does it say anything about a tribulation? And I would be like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, I just, like, I never had these conversations with anybody.
0: Okay. So you were, you were, you were dispy by default.
1: Yeah. I didn't even know anybody that was like post-trib or mid-trib. Like I I knew of people, but we never had a chance to talk about it. So I just, no mid-trib, no post-trib. Yeah. It was all pre-trib, pre-mail. And that was like, that was all I ever knew.
0: I feel like that's common for at least a lot of people like in our age, you know, the our millennial type age
1: and I like I like I said I read dispensational literature so I understood what all dispensationalism taught what I didn't understand was where you get the like the basic foundational stuff it was like here's this verse here's what we believe it means
0: yeah I think it was because that was that was the time that left behind was getting popular and it was just it was the common thing that everyone just was like oh yeah that but no one really read up on it
1: I think it was because there was a point in time when um, like the fundamentalist movement, most of the fundamentalists were dispensationalists and they were standing against liberalism that was coming from almost every other denomination. So there was a point in time where in America in particular, dispensationalism was like the only conservative like sort of teaching that there was other than very few. And so that's why when you talk to dispensationalists and when you read them, it seems like they're calling everybody who's on or post mill liberal crazy people. Yeah. Because there was a point in time when the on mills and post were liberal crazy people. Not all of them, but just the ones that they were interacting with at the time. And so there's a little bit of a hangover from that when it comes to conversation. So when, like, I, at at that point in time, I thought amillennials were just like, I thought it was like Roman Catholics are amillennial, Eastern Orthodox people are. Some are millennial, some are post millennial, but that's it. Everybody else is pre-trib pre-mill. Like that's I didn't I wasn't aware of yeah. anything else. So then after I kind of just you know kind of fit, finished understanding the eschatology issue, then I started to delve more into covenant theology. And so I I was uh, I went through the covenant theology lectures by Ligon Duncan.
0: Is that the, the iTunes U.
1: Yep, it's on iTunes U or yeah. or on their app. They have a mobile app that uses it as well. Yep. Um, from uh, RTS. RTS. Yeah, they have a they have an app that you can just listen to all their lectures through that. Um and I read Christ of the Covenants by Al Palmer Robertson.
0: That's been on my bookshelf for about two years and I've never touched it. I didn't know anything about it, so it was always on the bottom of my list.
1: It's a it's a good it's a good book. It's a very good introductory to understanding the basic kind of under concepts of covenant theology. Mm-hmm. And um and I read like I read the like Pascal Denaults uh, distinctiveness of Reform, the Reformed Baptist covenant theology sort of thing, um, so the sixteen eighty nine federalism sort of sort of understanding of things. So I kind of was reading those books at the same time, and uh, one just made a lot more sense to me. Um, I was sixteen eighty nine federalist for probably I don't know probably like a year and a half, something like that, just because. That's what I grew up being a Baptist, and so that made the most sense to me. And so I just kind of gravitated towards that. But the more I studied it, the less sense that that made and the more sense that the traditional covenant theology made.
0: What were the distinctives of that that that, that weren't convincing to you that stuck out?
1: The biggest arguments for me came down to uh, Hebrews 8 and Galatians 4 and those are kind of the the places where people sit and say well this is obvious you know Hebrews 8 quoting Jeremiah 31 mm-hmm. and and um and Galatians 4 so Hebrews 8 would be the place where people get the concept that of only regenerate membership um in the church or only regen re, only regenerate covenant membership so the new covenant is only regenerate people there's no there is no external uh, administration like there was in the old covenant um, and then you go to Galatians 4 and Galatian from Galatians 4, it's the, the tale of the Hagar and and Sarah, there, yep. the children of the slave woman and the children of the free woman. And he analogizes that to Jerusalem, which is – so the Jerusalem that they were standing in, Jerusalem, which is the, the Jerusalem, which was apostate at the time, mm-hmm. and the Jerusalem which of above, which is our mother – um and so they were and so they from this from this the sixteen eighty nine Federalists comes up with the concept of a dual seed um in the Covenant of Abraham. so the covenant of Abraham wasn't itself the covenant of grace, but there was an aspect of it that was like the promise of the covenant of grace, and then the other aspect of it was just physical typological land promises. So we recognize that there's typology throughout the Old Testament, but they say that the promise to Abraham was actually a twofold promise. On the one side, it was the spiritual promise to the spiritual seed. And on the other side, it's the physical promise to the physical seed. And that made sense to me for a long time until I realized from studying other issues that there was never any such thing as physical seed to begin with. And so it started, that was like really convincing on the first, like to begin with, it was like, wow, that's just really obvious because he said, these are the two covenants, right? So the you know the slave woman is the old covenant and the free woman is the new covenant and and so it just it seemed so obvious and then what i realized is that there are other possibilities about what that means because what are the two covenants is it the old covenant and the new covenant because it doesn't say that so it could be the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and so then the um the the reason that um Hagar is being uh, associated with the covenant of works in that particular vein is because those who are in the external, uh, it, those who are in the external administration of the covenant of grace who violate the covenant are cut off. And if you're cut off from the covenant, that means you're actually in the covenant of works and therefore you're a slave. Even though it seemed like you were not, but you're actually a slave. Because yeah. if, when you're under the covenant of works, you have to achieve your own righteousness by perfect obedience and nobody can do that. And so you're, you're a slave to the law. In addition to other things like, there is no such thing as a physical seed to begin with because even from the beginning of Abrahamic promise, it wasn't just Ishmael and Isaac that were in the covenant. It was his entire household, even slaves bought with money. They were considered his offspring according to the promise because they were basically the equivalent of adopted children. But mm-hmm. um, and then And then just coming to understand, like I asked people – like I told people this for so long. I said the only reason that I'm a Baptist is Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah 31. If you could explain that to me. Uh, I would probably change my view, and I said that to people for a long time, and people were like, "Well, is that really the only passage?" And I'm like, "It's a big deal. Like, I, it just doesn't make sense to me, and until it makes sense to me, I am not comfortable changing my perspective on that." Mm-hmm. And then I had people pointing out to me these uh, these other issues that, like Romans 11 and um, and Hebrews 10, Hebrews 6. Uh, John 15, where it talks about people who are obviously in the covenant, but then get cut off from the covenant and are cursed because of the um, failure to keep the condition of the covenant, and that condition is faith. Like, I, I couldn't deal with those issues in any way that made any sense. Like, I, I really looked, and I found Owen had some work where he kind of talks, talks through that, and basically his conclusion is it doesn't mean what it says. The text says, otherwise you too will be cut off, and what it actually means is, well— just don't boast. You can't actually be cut off, but don't boast. And it just, it bothered me that that was the only answer that there was that I had heard from people. So, um, so that's what changed my perspective on that.
0: So you never really reconciled your, the Hebrews 8, Jeremiah.
1: I did, but I reconciled it. I reconciled it by what I did was I said, okay, I need to just start with the presupposition that that's not what it means for a second. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just stop assuming that, that Jeremiah 31 means the new covenant has all regenerate. Like, let's just, just ignore that assumption for a moment. Stop assuming that and see what conclusion I can come to from the text otherwise. And actually, the changing point for me was when I read, I think it was Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy five, verse two or three, somewhere in there, Moses makes this, uh, he makes this, this statement where he says, do I, or not with your fathers, do I make this covenant, but with everyone who is alive here today. And I was like, wait a second. Isn't this the Mosaic covenant? Yeah, it's the Mosaic Covenant. He just got done talking about it. And in fact, in the next verse, he says, at Horeb, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wait a second. Then he totally did make that covenant with their fathers. Why is he saying he didn't make that covenant with their fathers? Like it was actually with their fathers and not with them that he made the covenant. Why is he saying not with your fathers, but with you? I didn't understand. And so I looked at the broader context and it was talking about it's the renewal of the covenant before they crossed the Jordan to enter the promised land. Right, so this is after the wilderness thing. They're about to enter the promised land, and this is the renewal of the covenant. And he uses that terminology. And I was like, "Well, that's interesting." And so then I went and I looked at Jeremiah thirty one, and I was like, "What? What does the language look like here?" And he says, "And he says, not like the covenant that I made with your fathers, which they broke, even though I was a husband to them." Um, and I was like, wow, that sounds a lot like what, what Moses said. And so if Moses uses that really stark contrasting terminology, talking about just the renewal of the very same administration of the covenant, I was like, why am I assuming that this means that it has to be completely different? So then I, that kind of started me down the route of understanding that the contrast was between the types and shadows rather than uh, the contrast between the covenant itself, stuff like that. So, And then from there... I, I got into theonomy at some point in time along the way because I was listening to Apology Radio, and so that kind of got me started, and, and I read Bonson's Theonomy and Christian Ethics, and By the Standard, and so that kind of sort of sold me on theonomy, and uh, I keep studying and, and learning more things as I go, but...
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like a lot of people that come to theonomy um, get there by way of presuppositional apologetics, because it changes right. your thinking so much. Yeah, I hear that a lot.
1: Yeah, because... The question that you ask when it comes to presuppositional apologetics, you're talking to an atheist and they say, Well, it's wrong to do XYZ and you say, By what standard? Yep. But then when you do the same sort of thing and you say, Well, the civil magistrate is supposed to punish evil and reward good by what standard? Yep. Same More. question. Yep, exactly. And that's that. So theonomy actually made sense to me very quickly because of that, because I was already a presuppositionalist.
0: Alright. So uh, what uh what's your favorite hobby? Ooh,
1: that's a tough one. My favorite hobby is nerd games or geeky games.
0: Facebook games or... No,
1: no, 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 no. Those are not nerd games. Are you
0: the one that sends the requests to everybody, all your friends on Facebook?
1: I found the button that lets you block all game requests. Oh, really? I did that. Yes. I did did not play Facebook games. But uh, when I say nerd games, I'm talking about like tabletop sort of games or like even play-by-post role-playing games, which sounds super nerdy. But it's basically like imagine Dungeons and Dragons when you're sitting around a table rolling dice, except you're doing it on a forum. So it's like you use a dice roller and you post the rolls and you type things instead of sitting around a table. So it takes longer yeah, to play, yeah, but nerdy. it's a little bit,
0: yeah, super <laughs> nerdy.
1: So like Settlers of Catan. Settlers of Catan is probably the least nerdy game that we play.
0: <laughs> okay. It's it's almost like gone mainstream.
1: We play, we play stuff like Betrayal at House on a Hill and uh, King of Tokyo. And if so if you guys like for those of you who like listen to the Reformed Pub, you know that there's like fifteen million subgroups. I'm the one who started the sub group this the pub subgroup called Reformed Pub Tabletop Gamers or something like that. And so it's all about tabletop games and hmm. including Dungeons and Dragons as well as like actual board game stuff, but um Nice. Yeah, so I'm into that sort of thing.
0: Is Brooke into that too? Do you guys play games together or is she like
1: Yeah, she likes games. She's probably not into it as much into it as I am, but she likes games, so we enjoy it. It's fun.
0: All right. Uh what is your favorite snack?
1: Snack? I don't really I honestly don't snack.
0: All right. You're going to you're going to the movie.
1: I don't I don't get snacks for the movies. No? No. It's like 5 bucks for like
0: No, 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 no. I'm talking about like you're an inconsistent theonomist for the evening and you go to Walgreens to buy some treats to snuggle in.
1: I don't do that.
0: Against the rules. No. Nope. No,
1: I just don't. It's I just don't. I don't eat snacks in the theater.
0: Okay, so you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and that's it.
1: I I will occasionally snack if I miss a meal or if I'm hungry, or sometimes Brooke snacks. I snack
0: with Brooke. I mean, like vegetables or chips or Snickers.
1: Yeah, like hummus, hummus and veggies, chips. Not a Snickers. I I can't do too many sweets. I like to drink. <laughs> I like, I like scotch, particularly Islay scotches. Whoa, 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 most whoa, particularly whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa. Lagavulin.
0: All right. You and your Christian liberty, you need to stop pushing this in my face. You, you're young, restless, and reformed Christian hipsters. You're pushing, you're talking about it. So clearly, you're pushing it in my face. The fact that you're even mentioning it, you're pushing it in my face. Even though I voluntarily am listening to this, you're pushing it in my face and you need to stop because you're making me stumble.
1: You know what, Dustin? I'm gonna go drink somewhere else because your legalism is causing me
0: to stumble. <laughs> All right. So you you like you like the PD scotches?
1: I like the PD scotches. I like I like other scotches too. Like I've tried a Lowlands and a Highlands and Spaceides, and I think Speyside is my second favorite. I tried um, Glenlivet 18. I think it was the other day, and that was that was pretty stinking good. It was it was pretty tasty.
0: Yeah, I've slowly gotten into the the PD. The PD stuff we have a scotch club at our church that meets every couple months
1: you have a scotch club at your church
0: yes it's amazing <sighs> I mean it's it's kind of the person who heads it up is from our church but there's it's other people other reform people around the, the cities that get together which is a bunch of guys um but so we we pitch in you know 10 20 bucks each time and that's enough to fund having kind of a broad spectrum of of bottles there and we usually pick five and we'll drink just little just a little bit of each throughout the night as we discuss some theological topic. But first time I went, it, oh, those those we start out on the the lighter, sweeter end and move to the more peaty, strong. And first time those it was it was hard to get them down. But now now I love them.
1: That's how you do it when you do like a flavor sampling. You you start with the simple and the. I don't remember the word. The not peaty, The not Smoky. Yeah, one of my buddies did one of those Flaviar sample packs and let me share it with him. So that was pretty awesome. Got to t- taste a bunch of different stuff. Sweet. That was actually the first time that I tried a Lowlands. I'd never tried one. It was very, very grassy. I think, or um, or, or herbaceous. I guess would be a better term. But I also like wine. I'm not really a wine aficionado. Um, but I like wine still. So I prefer reds in general. But if it's like a good pairing, I'll drink whatever. Um, and then, of course, I'm kind of a beer snob, so, so you probably figured out from the earlier
0: discussion. <laughs> yes. IPAs, stouts. What do you, what do you like? You're California, so you got to be all about the IPA, right?
1: Yeah, West Coast IPAs are a big thing out here, and so people do them really well.
0: Yeah, I finally had a Pliny a while back. Brandon Brandon Solberg, the Wookie, sent me a care package because he's amazing, and uh, yeah, I had a Pliny, and it was delicious.
1: No, I, like, that's kind of my, my favorites are like IPAs and stouts. Um, I also like por- I prefer stouts to porters, but I do like porters. Um, and mm. I, when it comes to like, like my- the only thing that I'm not really a huge fan of is I'm not really a huge fan of like Belgian blondes. Hm. Like, I will drink a Belgian blonde and they taste good, but that's just like my least favorite. Like, so that's the thing that I'm like, I probably won't go for it if there's something else to pick. Yeah. But I do like farmhouse sales, which is a, a sort of it's like related to Belgian style as far as like the high fermentation and temperatures and stuff like that. So Cool. I will I will drink anything if it's craft beer, basically.
0: <laughs> Are you anywhere near San Jose? San Jose is about four or five hours away. Okay. I was gonna say I know a uh, there's a there's a this the cider I'm drinking is from Sociable Cider Works, um, in Minneapolis and uh their master brewer is heading out to I think it's San Jose. In like mm. a month to start his own brewery, and he said there's only like three or four in the whole city. So he's uh, he's good, but he's gonna start up a shop out there. I don't know what's called.
1: Yeah, the the area that I'm in, I can drive to a brewery in about 20 minutes. Um, where I grew up in Lancaster, because I'm in Santa Cruz right now. When I was in Lancaster, Palmdale area, there's two breweries that are like craft brewery in the in the Lancaster area. Um, but like, I drove down to San Diego for a couple different trips and there are like over a hundred craft breweries in San Diego alone it's amazing wow yeah it's awesome
0: it's like that here in Minnesota we got we got a lot a lot of choices I was talking to uh actually the guys at Social Ciderworks like a week ago and they think they said that there's like somewhere between like four and five thousand um micro breweries like waiting to get their license with the I don't know if it's like the Craft Brewers Association just in the U.S. It's, it's insane
1: yeah, it's it's a market that's blown up because people – basically what happened is people realized I don't have to drink crappy beer. I can drink good beer and it actually tastes good and it's not just to like, you know, just to drink. It's like this tastes good and that market is just like skyrocketed. People love that sort of thing. And the thing that I like about it is most places that are like kind of smaller, they start out as like a tasting room where you can like – you just bring your own food. They don't serve food. They only serve beer and they only serve their beer. So, um, you bring your own food or maybe there's like a catering truck outside or something like that, whatever. Um, and you drink their beer and it's like when, you know, compared to the price of buying a beer in the store, it's about, I mean, it's about this, it's a little bit more expensive. It's about the same price and it's coming off the tap. So it's, it's better. And you get, it's kind of like, no matter which place you go, it's got a hometown feel because they're, because it's a, it's a microbrewery basically.
0: Yeah, and those, those food truck tacos out front, they always taste the best anyway. So,
1: <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Those pla- Food trucks is another thing that are they're picking up majorly because of places yes. like that. Because you mm-hmm. just, I mean, if you had a food truck and there were like five different breweries in town that didn't serve their own food, you could be there one day a week at a, each different place selling food and it'd be awesome. So anyway. Yeah, it's huge for them. Yeah, it's been cool.
0: Sweet. So being in California, uh, have you seen any famous people just walking around? Do you run into them all over?
1: That is the number one question that I get from people who live elsewhere and the answer to the question is technically yes but most people have not and it just like I just happened to be in the right place at the right time so um I ran into a couple of famous people at Disneyland and one or two uh, one famous person at uh no two no one famous person at Six Flags and one famous person at Knott's Berry Farm
0: Did you actually like say hi to them or was it did you get all Giddy, or did you just walk by?
1: I saw Nicolas Cage at Knott's Berry Farm and he (laughs) was like in a bad mood or is just like not a friendly person. And so I didn't even – I didn't really want to say hi to him because I don't really like him very much as as an actor. So I was like, meh.
0: Yeah, no. Um,
1: (laughs) At Six Flags, I ran into Avril Lavigne before she was like big in the U.S. And so I didn't really know who she was. I found out later. That was kind of Mm -hmm. funny. I just thought they were like some, you know, like – band that were just like trying to make it big. I didn't realize that she was actually a, an artist. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I ran into Johnny Depp at Disneyland a long time ago. Wow. Yeah, he was there. I don't remember exactly how long ago it was, but his, he he had his daughter with, with him and she was like, oh, she looked like four or five, something like that. So however mm. long ago that was. Yeah, he's a cool guy. He was actually super nice and down to earth, despite his being very, very strange. He's a very strange person. Really? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, like, just the way that he dresses. Like, you see pictures of him, and he's, like, dressed all strange. Yeah. He dresses like that all the time. That's just, like, his thing.
0: Yeah. He's hipster before he was hipster.
1: <laughs> no, he's still non-hipster. He's, like, he's too hipster for hipsters. <laughs> it's weird. But... Right. But, yeah, it's not it's not as as normal as you think. Like, California is giant, and the place that I grew up is an hour away from Hollywood. So there's, like, there's no famous people at all. Although, Arlie Ermey, who was the gunnery drill sergeant on... Full Metal Jacket, the movie Full Metal Jacket, yeah. yep. um, he's actually, he was in the Marines at, and was, I think he was a drill sergeant for real. And so he was a professional consultant for the movie, and he was supposed to train the actor to be a drill sergeant, and he made the actor mm-hmm. cry. So they hired him instead. Um, no way. Yeah. And so he's, he's been famous since since then. And But he's just a super down to earth guy, because he's not really an actor. He's just like, he was yeah. totally typecasted and did a good job with it, but he he lives in Lancaster and the brewery that I go to on a regular basis in Lancaster. He's one of the co-owners of the brewery, so I guess oh, that you could say he's famous too. Michael Jackson's ex-wife lives in Lancaster. I don't even know who that is. So there was somebody else from a long time ago that was famous that like their house is in Lancaster, but I really don't remember who it was. People always, oh, my gosh, did you see famous people? And I'm like, I really don't like famous people for the most
0: part. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I just, just don't go places.
0: All right. So here's, here's the tough question for the evening. Explain the basic fundamentals of music theory in 30 seconds. Go.
1: The basic fundamentals of music theory go uh, come from when I was talking earlier about how you sing. When you sing, you sing one pitch. Ah, oh, But in that one pitch itself, there are actually many pitches and what makes each sound, even each person's voice singing the same pitch unique is the, that harmonic series above it. But all of music theory is, is actually based on the harmonic series created by your natural voice. So when you sing a single pitch, the octave above that, and then there's a perfect fifth above that, Mm -hmm. and then the. Next octave, so it's octave, fifth, octave, and then third, fifth, really flat, flat seven, octave, two, three, really, really flat, sharp four, five, and then it just goes up from there. So the all of the tonalities that we usually listen to on a daily basis are based off of that. Even the major scale is based off of just a single pitch. It's actually almost Trinitarian music theory if you think about it. Where it's the one in the many. There's one pitch, but in the one pitch is all of the pitches. All of the pitches are in the one note. So if I sing one note, all of the pitches are in that one note.
0: So you're not actually, you're not actually just singing one. The scales
1: and chords and everything are all major major chords and minor chords and diminished chords and augmented chords. They all come from just me singing one note. They're all based on that. So that's deep. Yeah, that's presuppositional music theory. Boom.
0: <laughs> yes. Awesome. Anything else we need to know about Colin?
1: I don't think there's anything you need to know about Colin, <laughs> but you asked, bro. <laughs> I
0: think I think that's all I got for questions. I know more than I
1: ever wanted to know about Colin.
0: All right. Well, uh, thanks for answering my questions. And uh, yeah, we'll just say if anybody has any other questions about us or about anything, um, maybe we'll start finishing off our, our regular episodes with answering some questions um, that people might have. But uh, until then, we will see you guys next week. Be sure to check us out on datpostmail.com. One L, one word. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Google+. We're everywhere on them in a nets.
1: Dem in
0: And we do still have the Ask a Theonomist going. So if you have questions, we've got a couple um, waiting in the queue. We record them kind of all at once. Do like five or six of them at a time um, just cause it makes the most sense. So we're waiting to get some more before we do another section of those. We do have some recorded and we'll be getting those edited and coming out in the near future. If you want to support us because you're sick of the iTunes feed errors, you can feel free to, um, send us any money you want. Um, on our website, you can find a link for that. Um, if you don't like just giving money, but you like buying stuff, we're going to try to start selling some stuff on the website. Right now we have Uh, Just two prints that you can buy uh, uh, with just little quotes on it. Um, They're 99 cents, and we will send you a PDF that you can print at your nearest Kinko's and frame. And that 99 cents will get us that much closer to better hosting, or it'll get Colin that much closer to being married. (laughs)
1: Uh.
0: So be sure to check that stuff out. Um, Shout out to us on social media. Send us an email, postmail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. I didn't know what you was doing, man, when you was doing all this, but, <laughs> another one, let's go, walk, talk, eat, drink, sleep, drink, gospel, wake, pray, read, dress, work, think, gospel, press, fellowship, yes, church, hear, see, gospel, everything, gospel, everywhere, everywhere.